Hello, everyone. Welcome to another week of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, and I am here with the master of all the dungeons, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Woo! Uh, how are you doing, Sean? I am very happy to be here. I am happy to be here, too, uh, rubbing two sticks together to make a <laughs> podcast. <laughs> That's how we do it. Yes, we do it old school. Stone uh, by stone, brick by brick. You may think computers are involved. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. We're using tin cans and string, baby. That's tin right. Tin cans and string. I hear you loud and clear, neighbor. Yeah. So uh, so 47 years ago, there was this game created called D&D. I think it has a good chance of, of, uh, of lasting. Yeah, it's got some sticky to it. Yep. Uh, so somewhere around this time, 47 years ago, a small brown box set of the original D&D rules was released into the world. I've been perusing that book uh, of Dyson Men. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting story of, of how things came to be and how, how some things are going to succeed no matter how hard that the people making them try to fail. Yeah. I, I like of Dyson Men, uh, uh, Mr. Ewalt writes, writes a, yeah. that's a good book. He has a real knack for telling a story. And I like how he weaves in the history of the game and his own campaign together. Yeah. Uh, but primarily the history of the game. Yeah, it's fascinating read. Really good yeah. stuff. Yep. So, uh, so pamphlets. Happy birthday. Yep. Happy birthday, D&D. Um, next, the Unearthed Arcana Gothic Lineages article not only came out, but they are now taking feedback on it. So you can go give your feedback on the Damn Fear, the Hexblood, and the Reborn. And we're not going to go through those step by step because we're already doing that with Tasha's. Yep. But if you have feedback, make sure you give it. But we did want to note one of the sidebars in this article talks about the customization of racial traits that Tasha's introduced and how going into the future that uh, race options in D&D are going to lack some of those uh, rules mechanics like ability score increases, language traits, alignment traits, and so on. Anything that's based on culture is going to be excised from that portion of the game they will still the rules will still re reflect physical or magical realities but not cultural realities yeah it's, it's pretty uh i think this this really created a lot of positive reactions on twitter when when people saw this file um because it does take everything a step further than what tasha's did and does acknowledge not just that hey you have this flexibility of how you create your character but that we're actually going to change how we look at this term of race and that separation of sort of true physical genetic things right having dark vision uh you know being <laughs> short in stature like that's that's a thing that a species has and 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 its mechanical components are things that that we will use as race but the, everything else um, languages, ability scores, those are, are, are who you happen to be. And, and we're not going to typecast that way, which is interesting. Yep. So that evolution of rules changes, you know, based around these concepts is continuing as we see in this article. And I'm sure we'll continue further as more rules material is released for 5e. Yeah. 
and we have reached the puppet stage of D&D. <laughs> I, I did notice this, and I, I just I sort of shook my head and chuckled and thought, yeah, why not? You yeah. want to talk about the puppet stage of D&D? I mean, you have to, right? I mean, when you think of, like, how popular are we uh, as a game, and, and then you realize, you know, we've, we truly have reached the puppet stage. So they uh, announced uh, via email, via Twitter, all the ways... Uh, D&D has a show that's on YouTube um, put together by um, a different group um, that is a six episode YouTube series called Stuff of Legends. Get it? Stuff, stuffing. Uh, and it's a YouTube series with puppets on a D&D adventure. There is a trailer out already. Uh, February 2nd is when the first episode released. And then I'm not sure how long it is for each episode to be released, you know, what, what the spacing will be, but new releases will be uh, coming out until you have a full six episode series of puppets. Yep. Hey, it, it was time. Time to get <laughs> I mean, time to get your puppet on. I've been demanding a puppet show for yeah. so long. And speaking of shows, minus the puppet, Winter Fantasy is happening this week. Uh, when this show drops, it will probably be the first day of Winter Fantasy. Uh, there will probably be a few seats still available uh, when when the show drops. Um, so, you know, we talked about it before. A great time. It's all online this year. I personally will miss not going to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm seeing all my friends. It's kind of got me a little down, but... We're going to keep the faith. We're going to keep gaming, even if it is online. Uh, you'll be able to play all the games, and Jasper's Game Day will be uh, supported as well with cool re-rolls, uh, helping to fund suicide prevention. Yeah, and you can go to the jaspersgameday.com site, and you can um, uh, not only buy your re-roll tokens, which directly gives money, but you can also put in money for raffle tickets, which give you a chance of winning various cool prizes that um, companies, role-playing com companies have donated, or uh, special certificates that the Adventures League has put up that let you have cool things in game. So uh, a great cause to support while you're enjoying your Winter Fantasy games. I'm signed up to play a couple of different games. Uh, with my buddies that I usually travel to Origins or Gen Con with. So now we're doing the online Winter Fantasy. Uh, and and it's great, but it also really does make me miss all the great friends that we see at Winter Fantasy. And so for those listening, we miss you. Can't we wait do. to be able to do this safely in person. Yes, for sure. The day will come. Mm -hmm. uh, good five you... years from now, probably. Yeah, well, hopefully not five years, but... Uh... <laughs> And, I mean, I'm Not sure people year. are out there going, oh, boy, we don't get to see Teos and Sean. Whew! We've dodged That's the bullet true. for another year. Uh, the D100 News takes a look at 2020 with their top 100 Kickstarters. And it looks at the most back projects with at least 2,000 backers as indication of interest without looking at revenue per se. Uh, I was very happy to see that the new company I work for, Ghostfire Gaming, uh, had number one with over 9,000 backers uh, for Grim Hollow, the player's guide. Uh, so, yeah. that, and that was the seventh biggest RPG project since Kickstarter launched in 2009. Yeah. In terms of revenue, right? Over 740,000 on that yeah. Kickstarter uh, really shows the strength. And, and I, this whole article is just sort of fascinating. I, I love looking at things like this because it's the kind of thing that like it's data, but you can't quite draw conclusions, but it, it it's it's so right. captivating to look at it, right? You know what what does it mean? What does it tell us? Yep. 
Um, one thing well, it obviously tells us. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. D and D dominates, yeah. right? So seven of the top ten were D and D projects, um, and more than half of those had over two thousand backers. Yeah, uh, of those projects. Four of them were standalone role-playing games, two being licensed properties, and all being science fiction, which was interesting. Um, yeah. I was surprised by this next fact that no Pathfinder project in 2020 had more than 2,000 backers. Yeah, except for thing, you know, there was one that was like a video game and, right. and wasn't actually role-playing. And, and, and that's the thing that's important to note here is that they really tried to isolate um, things that were primarily a role-playing game. And, and this happens sometimes in, in surveys. And what it does do is it takes out some companies, like I think MCDM often doesn't qualify for this mm -hmm. because they'll have like miniatures or other pieces. And so they'll they'll get caught at, cut, cut out of it, even though they'll have very big numbers. Right. Um, so I believe MCDM might not have not been on this list because of that, because it's seen as sort of being in conjunction with other things so similarly for pathfinder the video game doesn't count and all the other projects are very small and 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 fewer in number which is very interesting mm -hmm. yep there were some strong indie games like thirsty sword lesbians which is uh an apocalypse world-based game that was third on the list and we have both new companies like hit point press free league hunters entertainment as well as established companies like cobalt press and cobalt press and onyx path uh, so that's under d100news.com. You can look at the RPGs on Kickstarter in 2020. Very cool. Uh, you want to talk about the, uh, John Peterson? Yeah, so John Peterson uh, is a D&D historian. He posts on Twitter and has a blog playing at the world as well as a book with that name. Um, and he looked at the earliest uses of the term immersion. And I thought this was kind of fascinating because a lot of times we like to think about role-playing and, and the level of role-playing, you know, as, as being something very unique to today or these days rather than older. And we think of people just chucking dice and murdering each other. But he um, looks at immersion showing up as a term as far back as 1977, mm -hmm. but then also multiple mentions throughout the 70s of getting into character. Um, in 1975, there's a, a, a piece that writes about living the part uh, and other words like that. So, so terms that are mean the same thing as immersion, but they sort of hadn't found a, a word for it. Uh, even role-playing doesn't appear as a term used often uh, until later on. But he looks back at a Kriegspiel, a type of wargaming developed by the Prussian army in uh, the 19th century. And here they're simulating combat. And, and so to do so, they would they believed it was better to approximate real command structures by getting into a role and playing out that role. And so even in wargaming, there was often this idea that, well, let's get into character somewhat, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we're not playing a character truly, we're sort of reporting for our units or whatever. Right. And he shows some really neat pieces that when you look at it, you're like, wow, that's actually quite modern and feel. So like B1, Search of the Unknown, classic adventure. Mm -hmm. says, take on your character's persona and immerse yourself in the game setting, enjoying the fantasy element and the interaction with your fellow players and the dungeon master, which is, you know, it could just be in an adventure today. Right. Um, or a really neat 1981 article by Ed Greenwood, the father of the Forgotten Realms. And it, the point of the article is he's saying you don't have to know all the rules, but he says that it's particularly not important to teach new players the rules 
if you tell them to play like their characters and do what their characters do, because yeah. if they just tell you what their character would do, they don't need to know the mechanics of it. You can look that up or know it. They don't need to actually know the particular thing. And he actually mentions the Kriegspiel 1876 war games mm -hmm. as using this sort of mentality. So I thought that was all really a fascinating look back at, at how immersion and role playing have been around since pretty early on. Yeah, and, and it's still obviously a conversation today as we talk about, you know, not just D&D, &D, but different games and how they meld the concept of, of role playing and narrative creation versus the rules that they used to do so. Um, yeah. It's always a fascinating um, and, and relevant topic to, to discuss when you discuss D&D. &D. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of D&D, &D, let's talk Adventurers League. We are going to give you a brief rundown of where the D&D AL website went. <laughs> <laughs> it vanished. It is gone, but it is returned, sort of. Uh, you can get updates and be part of the community by going to the D&D Watsi Discord. And they have moved some content to the Watsi website, a more general uh, description of what the Adventures League is and, and what it does. And they are also going to move some of the content to the Yawning Portal, which is what they use now to sign up for the D&D weekends or some of the uh, like D&D live uh, events. And yeah, this came up as a yeah. conversation on, on Twitter this week. And, you know, DM David was sort of saying, like, you know, I'm a big AL fan. I don't kind of understand where how is AL communicating? And so there was a lot of discussion back and forth. And, and so I actually said, all right, I'm going to put together a blog on this, which I did, because it is a little confusing for people. And, and also Discord can be so hard to navigate. And while you and I mentioned on a show several episodes ago that you can subscribe to just that update channel mm -hmm. and point that to a Discord channel, that's not a very obvious thing for how to do it. Right. Um, so I, I, on the blog, I put instructions so you can follow it. So you can make your own discord channel and have it come in there and that we don't have to wade through all of the enormous number of channels on the wizards of the coast discord channel to find the AL updates. You yeah. can just send it to one little channel that you put together. Or if you have like a discord server that you, um, have with your friends, your gaming group, then mm -hmm. everything can feed there. Yeah. But it's, it's also interesting to see that they are, uh, that the, the, they have these sort of many ways of providing information that aren't always under one umbrella, right? Like Yawning Portal is a great name in terms of a place to go play adventures, but it's not obviously connected to AL. Mm -hmm. And so it, I think there'll be some work as they try to join yeah. that all together thematically. Yeah, you and I have been doing this, uh, you know, living campaign, organized play, RPGA, whatever you want to call it over the years. We've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. And it's fun to watch this wheel go around of, you know, <laughs> we're going to communicate this way because it's very clear and whether it's, you know, it was Yahoo groups and then it was, well, right. There's too many Yahoo groups and they're too out of control. So we need to move, move it to the Watsi website. But then when you get to the Watsi website, yeah. it's, it's impossible for, you know, even people that work for wizards to update that in a timely yeah. manner. So then it, the wheel swings back around to these third party channels and it's, it's just a constant motion and it's not insidious. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not, so people doing anything wrong it's just the way the cycle works and yeah, i mean we'll, we'll always to, do it 
Right. We're just, we're people, we're fallible. And, and just like our own companies that are trying their best to get something done, uh, how you distribute information is an endless pursuit and it's very difficult. And yeah, so we'll see this wheel go around for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> and something else has come around the wheel of Eberron for Beetle and Grimm's. They are offering 20% off their gold edition Eberron box set during February. They call it what, Feb Feberon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you can get that gold edition uh, rising from the last war beetle and grimm's edition contains you know maps and it essentially contains the whole book uh divided into its own chapters so you can hand out players to their uh hand out chapters to the players with the information they need while you can keep the monsters and the mini adventure and all of that on your side of the screen yeah and it has gorgeous handouts that look like they're you know notes that you found and they'll have um super cool maps and and a, a train map uh that you can play on and an airship and all kinds of neat things like that so it's mm -hmm. these are always great sets and 20 percent off is good yes yes and it's not a full platinum edition so it's right. you know you're not talking several hundred dollars uh just a couple hundred dollars and uh, so if, if you're an Eberron fan and you missed it the first time around, here's your chance to get in on it. Uh, last but not least, I want to give a shout out for a Kickstarter that Ghostfire Game and Eldermancy are combining to do. It's called The Seeker's Guide to Twisted Taverns. It went live this morning as of our recording, and it had already funded uh, 200000 not 200000 $20,000 had already funded in, I think, like 30 minutes. Um, wow. So it is a very large uh, project that deals with all sorts of mystical, magical taverns. And it will contain maps, not just maps, but modular maps, because these taverns, they don't look the same each time you go in. So there's modular pieces and there's NPCs and there's quests and there's all sorts of goodies that go along with it. So you can give that a look on Kickstarter at Seeker's Guide to Twisted Taverns. Yeah, that's awesome. It looks really cool. Uh, I love taverns and bringing them to life so it's not a boring place that you're visiting. Yep. Let's see. Yep. And we should now talk about Tasha's because we have some fighter martial archetypes to to get through uh, we did talk last week about the optional features and now we can talk about the new archetypes the first of which is the psi warrior a psionically infused striker and defender think githyanki think aberon with the kalistar yeah, you could try to think dark sun although dark sun isn't mentioned in the uh i mean it was like they're picking on me when they don't mention Darcy. I know. It's like a personal front. I'm surprised they didn't put a little footnote in there like, screw you, Teos. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think that's what it is, actually. It's an invisible one. Uh, mm -hmm. Only I can click on. No, I, I or maybe Robert Aducci. I think it's because some of us have uh, complained about whether the, the way psionics has been tackled in 5e truly works well for dark sun and, and and it's it's an open question that i mm -hmm. think some will say it's fine and some will say it doesn't really work um but it, it's the tact that 5e has taken and so i think that's something you, one can think of when you're looking at these sound because there are a couple of psionic uh subclasses spread throughout tasha's and you can think you know does this really work for 5e or will it need some adjustment 5e dark sun mm -hmm. uh, will it need some adjustment when that setting is released yeah i i mean what teos is talking about is all it's been a constant war 
uh, in gamer terms since first edition, since AD&D, where they introduced psionics, which is how should it be a completely separate system? How should it work with the base rules? Should it even be in the game? You know, all of those questions. Uh, and ev everyone has their own uh, bent on how they want to see it handled. Uh, and there, obviously, opinion matters. But what's more important to me is, does it work in and of itself? Does My it most important thing, Sean, is should there be a halo drawn over every psionic character's head, as in fourth edition? Uh, probably. <laughs> I, I don't see... I don't see why not. Of course. And, and those of us who played AD&D back in the days are still psychically scarred by <laughs> by psionics back then uh, because it was a whole show on it. Yeah, we could do several shows on it, but let's just say it wasn't well balanced. No. And so character players that wanted to play with them uh, tended to abuse them pretty horribly. And psionic combat happened in the first segment of actual combat, which is yep. to say the first like millisecond. And so uh, when we met Lolth at the end of Queen of the Demon Web Pits, the psionic character, the character who had psionic powers in our party was super excited. And literally the combat starts and they drop dead. Yes. Because <laughs> they lost. They lost the our second combat, combat, with, psionic with, combat with a goddess and yep. as, as it should be took like 10 minutes of real game time to right. play out but in in game it was like right. you know drops down to the ground dead yep it begins good times so for the psi warrior though it's a little more reasonable uh this warrior bit. has psionic powers and how are those psionic powers uh expressed through psionic energy dice okay wow. so we we already have uh a prerequisite or a precursor to this, which is, you know, the, the martial dice that yeah. that you use battle as, master. as a battle master. So, all right, so that's the tack they're going to take. Which is cool, right? I like when D&D sort of takes another thing that's sort of familiar, mm -hmm. but is a little different. Uh, and so this is a way to, you know, psionics probably should feel a little different. Mm -hmm. And so let's take the battle master concept of these sort of dice that empower your abilities but we'll call them sonic energy dice and make it a little different. Cool. Yep. So that's what you use. How many do you get? You get a number of dice equal to twice your proficiency bonus. So at lower levels, you'll have four and then you'll, you'll increase as you go up to, was it 10? No, uh, 12 at 17th level. Uh, so all the, the powers that are going to be talked about here are powered by those dice. Uh, what I found interesting was, even if you are just a third level fighter and you take 17 levels of something else, you still get all of those dice, even though you're only a third level uh, character. Because it's proficiency bonus. Because it's proficiency yeah. bonus. And it doesn't say proficiency bonus just in fighter. Now, yeah. the, the die type also increases over levels. It starts as a D6, goes to a D8 at 5th, a D10 at 11th, and a D12 at 17th. And that does say based on in your this class in this class. Yeah. So you will get more dice, whether you are a third level fighter or a 20th level character, but you, your die type will not increase, which I thought was okay. I think that's a fine trade-off. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so then these yeah. dice are going to empower your, your powers, right? Yep. And you want to start talking about those powers? Sure. We get a, a 
three different powers that we have access to right off the bat that kind of set the core of what this class is about. The first one is protective field. When you are another creature, you can see within 30 feet, takes damage, use your reaction, you expend a psionic energy die, you roll the die, and the damage taken is reduced by whatever the result of the die was, minimum of one, which is a sort of telekinetic force shield that you throw up. Mm -hmm. I noted that, you know, there's a lot of interrupt reaction things in subclasses and Tasha's. Yeah. It's starting to feel a little bit like 4E did where every character could respond to what a boss did and, and you just go around with, well, I do this, I do that, I, you know, and yeah. the flow gets interrupted. Yeah. I mean, the, the game did not, the 5E core book does not require that everybody's always using the reaction each round. And mm -hmm. it's getting a little bit more that this is going to happen more and yep. more reactions. Yep. Yeah. One of the, one of the, the, like every edition, something that someone likes as a positive as someone else's negative. Mm -hmm. And for, for four E one of the complaints slash benefits was you have to pay attention during other people's turns. Right. You would always hear that it, it was either. I love four E because you, everyone has to pay attention during their everyone's turn or I hate this game because I have to pay attention during everyone's turn. Uh, well, that was certainly something I like because I, I noticed coming from third to fourth that in third edition, you could go take a drink of water or at convention games, someone would go to the bathroom. But now it's like you couldn't. You had to be there to apply your bonus to someone else's turn and right. you know, and all, all these things that could feed off of what other people did meant you had to pay attention, which didn't mean everybody was more engaged. <laughs> right. Or or everyone was missing everything yeah or it slowed the game down dramatically as yep. someone had to remind you hey don't you have an ability yeah so it's right. it's always that double-edged sword and you're absolutely right we're getting more into that territory where everything is becoming just a step more complicated a step yep. uh more uh interrupty <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and yeah, definitely. And there are players who do not love the super strategic play, right? They want to do more on the side of like, let's tell stories, let's roll dice, let's play casual. And the more and more that you have to pay attention to these type things, the, the less that that kind of player is going to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's just worth keeping in mind. Right. Um, you know, as a player, that's one of the things you can look at when you're choosing your subclass. Do you really want to manage those kinds of things? If you don't, yeah. don't take that kind of subclass. But For if sure. you do then it's great, right? Yep. Um, all right, so protective field is the first one. Sonic strike is the second one. Once on each of your turns, you can propel your weapons of sonic force immediately after you hit a target within 30 feet of you with an attack and you have dealt damage to it with a weapon. You expend a sonic energy die, you roll it, and you deal force damage to the target equal to the number rolled plus your intelligence modifier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, D6 plus int is a nice boost to damage. Mm -hmm. um, it can only be once per turn. So there's a little bit of a limit and you have to use your dice. So that's limiting it, but it is a nice damage boost. You can do several times per, per, you know, day. Um, it's, uh, yeah, nice. Right. Oh, in addition, we should also mention that, uh, you get your dice back after you finish a long rest, yeah. but, uh, as a bonus action, you can regain one expended cyanic die, uh, but you can't do that again until you finish a short or a long rest. Yeah. So basically you, you can spend a bonus action to get a die back 
per encounter, um, if that's what you want to call. If you things. take a short rest, you can right. then short do rest. that again. It's, it's sort of an interesting. I don't. It's sort of interesting, right? Like you have to use your bonus action, which you're just going to do out of combat anyway. But yeah. right, yeah, yeah. That that's a that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, so that was Sonic Strike. Next is telekinetic movement. You can move an object or a creature with your mind as an action. You can target one loose object that is large or smaller, or one willing creature. Uh, that I assume is large or smaller, but maybe not. I don't know. Uh, other than yourself. If you can see the target and it has been 30 feet of you, you can move up to 30 feet to an unoccupied square you can see. Alternatively, if it's a tiny object, you can move it to or from your own hand. Either way, you can move the target horizontally, vertically, or both. Uh, once you take this action, you can't do it again until you finish a short or a long rest unless you expend a psionic die to do it again. Uh, so awesome as Teos notes, awesome tactical potential. Um, yeah. and it's, at least it's not a teleport. So I'm okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting, I'm closer to liking this than a lot of the other teleporting things that we've seen at third level. Uh, and, and since it's willing that I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, it's a free fly. Uh, yeah, this is like the Jedi uh, Clone Wars cartoon does this all the time. The Jedi will will propel each other right. you know, across a chasm or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's pretty neat because of those confines. It also avoids the whole, like, let me put the bad guy in the fire or things like that because it yep. has to be willing. So it's it's a tactical uh, positioning move, but it also works out of combat to get up onto the ledge or climb mm -hmm. the pillar or. Yeah, so I, I think it's neat. Uh, one thing is all these powers are not all of them, but a number of them tap into your intelligence, especially that psionic strike that deals extra damage. So as a fighter, you now have to have both strength and int. And I almost wonder whether we shouldn't have just been an int class, which is if psionic psionicist mm -hmm. was a class as it was in fourth edition, as it has been in some other editions, we know that the primary ability would have been intelligence and mm -hmm. this would be the warrior psionicist and it would use intelligence instead of strength and so it's just like well you're making you know you're forcing the secondary stat uh which if you look at a fighter is needing maybe two stats with con now this is the tertiary stat mm -hmm. you know so it's that's a little harder but yeah and, and what my what my mind goes to now is okay i'm going to need int so why not multi-class with wizard then i can do like booming blade sorts of spells uh, to get that extra oomph and then I get to add yeah. the that. So it's, you know, it's sort of, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thought on that whole intelligence thing. Yeah. Uh, I would have rather it be an int class, you know? Yeah. Oh sense. yeah. Me too. As a class. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this is the, the tack that they've taken. Yeah. It would also work better for dark sun if it was a <laughs> but okay. Uh, who cares about dark sun? Uh, seventh yeah, level yeah. you get, uh, telekinetic adapt so you get two more powers that you can use with your psionic die the first is psi powered leap as a bonus action you can propel your body with your mind you gain a fly speed equal to twice your walking speed until the end of the current turn uh, once you take this bonus action you can't again until you finish a short or a long rest unless you expend a psionic energy die to take it again so now you're not moving someone else around, you're moving yourself around. And that's cool. Seventh level, sure, fly away. Yeah, it's fine. It's sort of funny that you can throw people through the air before you can throw yourself, but it's okay. Well, I mean, I know that I have a hard time throwing 
myself through the air, but I can just heave <laughs> other people around uh, at will. I didn't know you were talking publicly about that. But yeah, well, you know. Uh, and then telekinetic thrust is the second seventh level ability. Uh, when you deal damage to your target with your psionic strike, you can force the target to make a strength saving throw against your DC. If the uh, save fails, you can knock the target prone or move it up to 10 feet in any direction horizontally. This is another sign of that, right? It's a strength saving throw, so we can't dump our strength. But the the DC is based on our intelligence modifier. Yeah, well, right. it's oh, just, no, the, target the strength saving throw. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so this is basically making strength a dump stat for fighters now. <laughs> well, except that's what you're using to hit, right? Uh, unless you use dex weapons. That's true. So you could do either deck, but you still have to have either dex or strength. Yeah, plus yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, I'm going to talk about strength as a dump stat later when we talk about the adventure. Wonderful. Uh, so I'm just, I'm queuing it up yep. here for you. Uh, Perfect. At level 10, you get guarded mind. You have resistance to psychic damage. Moreover, if you start your turn charmed or frightened, you can expend a psionic energy die and end every effect on yourself, subjugating you to those conditions. Yeah, it's interesting that you end the effect, not the condition. So in theory, if some spell both charmed and poisoned you, I think all of it's gone because you ended the effect. That's right. Yes, you end the yep. You end every effect on yourself. So what what this means is sometimes it will say, "Target is restrained." While you're restrained, you're also charmed, or while you're poisoned, you're also unconscious. They they put two together. Um, yeah. So what this does is, if if it's X that leads to Y charmed or Y frightened, it's the X that goes away, not yeah. the Y, uh, which is obviously more powerful. That's pretty neat. Uh, you want to talk about level 15? Bulwark of Force. As a bonus action, you can choose creatures, which can include you, that you can see within 30 feet, up to a number equal to your int. And each of those is protected by half cover for one minute or until you're incapacitated. So some number of party members uh, are going to get plus two bonus to AC and deck saving throws because that's what cover does. Um, and then once you take this bonus action, you can't do so until you finish a long rest, or you can expend a psionic energy diet to be able to do it again later. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not bad. Uh, yeah. I don't know that it feels like level 15 to me. Right. But, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, at level 18, you have telekinetic master. Your ability to move creatures and object with your mind is matched by few, except me. Uh, you can cast the telekinesis spell requiring no components. And your spell casting ability for the spell is intelligence on each of your turns while you're concentrating on the spell, including the turn in which you cast it, you can make one attack with your weapon as a bonus action. Uh, and once you cast the spell, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest or expend a die. And so, hey, being able to cast telekinesis at will for a bit, that's mm -hmm. that's nothing to sneeze at when you can also take in your regular uh, weapon attack with it. I think that's what makes it uh, really work because, you know, you could argue, well, my attacks are better than telekinesis, but when you get to do a little bit of each, now it becomes pretty cool. And yeah. now I'm thinking like, I mean, let's be honest, this is the Jedi Knight right. subclass. Like this isn't even yep. just Psy Warrior. This is truly like a Clone Wars Jedi Knight. Yeah. You're just whipping people around with one hand and hitting them with your lightsaber with the other. Yep. Yep. All right, so that was uh, the Psy Warrior. Warrior. Any thoughts on overall thoughts? It's fun. It's cool. Um, 
again, I would have wished this was a Cyanosis class and this is a it's fighter subclass, but, but I like the general, uh, what it provides as a package, uh, yeah. certainly thematic. Yep. And I agree. I, you know, part of me loves that they're using the same sort of system that they use for the battle master with the dice. Uh, part of me thinks that that is as complicated as I want the game to be. So adding another piece that is equally complicated as we've already talked about, um, can be detrimental to certain types of play styles. And yeah, and I think, you know, we've already seen that fifth edition has this, like the warlock is a far more complicated class, mm -hmm. not just even subclass, but class than a fighter. Um, and, and, and maybe unnecessarily so if you look at it from a design standpoint, you know, you have like things like tons and tons of spells, but you only have a couple of slots. Right. Um, that kind of burden is great for some people. It, it means thinking and choosing and, and, and analyzing the game and very tactical kind of mindset. And for others, it's just, it's, it's baggage. Um, and so I think the game always has to dance between those and make sure that there are enough ways to be effective mm. and, and that being effective doesn't require having this sort of management, right? That the stronger right. classes have this. Um, so that's the part that I think is just design wise, they, they need to look at carefully as they add more and to make sure that the classes they're adding aren't primarily these kind of high engagement classes mm -hmm. that require a certain mindset because they don't appeal to everybody. So, right. And so let's talk about the other subclass, the uh, the Rune Knight. At now, this I remember being out uh, in an unearthed arcana because I remember discussing it. I the believe. funny part is I remember the other one more than Rune Knight, yeah. the Psy Warrior, but oh, uh, yeah, it's Dark Sun. Yep. So uh, at third level, as a Rune Knight, you get bonus proficiencies with Smith tools, and you get to speak, write, and read giant because this is all about using giant magic to make yourself stronger, faster, uh, more powerful. At level three, you also which Sean, can we just pause and say, hey, this would have been a great subclass back when Storm King's Thunder was. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's exact. That might be when they originally released this. <laughs> that's probably as, true. And so it's been a while. Uh, so. At level three, you get your main ability, which is called Rune Carver. You learn two runes, and each time you level in the class, you can replace one of the runes with a different one. Um, when you reach certain levels, you gain additional runes. Uh, so you get th two to start with. At seventh, you get three runes. Tenth, four runes. And at fifteenth, you get five runes. So whenever you finish a long rest, you can touch a number of objects equal to the number of runes you know and inscribe a different rune onto each of these objects. The rune must be a weapon, a suit of armor, a shield, a piece of jewelry, or something you can wear or hold in your hand. Um, the rune remains on an object until you finish another long rest and an object can only bear one rune at a time. And some runes require you be a, a particular class level. And then if there's any saving throws, it's a con modifier plus eight plus proficiency bonus. So you want to touch on the first rune here? We'll sure. alternate. And again, the point of these is you're taking an object and you're empowering it at the beginning of the day. So you have to sort of make this choice up front, but you get a number of different runes to choose from. Cloud rune, deceptive magic used by some cloud giants. While wearing or carrying an object with this rune, you have advantage on dexterity sleight of hand checks and charisma deception checks. 
In addition, when, a, when you or a creature you can see within 30 feet of you is hit by an attack roll, you can use your reaction to invoke the rune and choose a different creature within 30 feet of you other than the attacker. The chosen creature becomes the target of the attack using the same roll. So you redirect an attack from one creature to another by using the power. And once you invoke the rune, you can't do it again. Um, also worth noticing that you can redirect this attack regardless of the attack's range. Um, this can be hugely, hugely powerful, right? Redirecting a yeah. big hit from your buddy to an enemy. Yep. That's pluses and minuses in two columns that are, you know, it's like healing your character and dealing damage to another one. So super powerful. And all of these runes, you use it once uh, and you can't finish, you can't do it again until you finish a short or long rest, which mm -hmm. actually, you know, short rest is pretty powerful too. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I, my understanding is you still then get this baseline advantage, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think you're still getting the dexterity sleight of hand check and charisma yeah. deception checks. You just can't do the whole redirect again. Yep. Um, so that's Cloud Rune. Fire Rune, similar mechanics in how it's going on, but while wearing or carrying an object with this rune, your proficiency bonus is doubled for any ability check that makes your proficiency, that uses your proficiency with a tool. But now here's the here's the juice. Yep. When you hit a creature with an attack using a weapon, you can invoke the rune, summon fiery shackles, target takes 2d6 fire damage extra. Suc must succeed on a strength saving throw or be restrained for one minute. Mm -hmm. And while restrained for that minute, it takes 2d6 fire damage at the start of each of its turns. What? Yeah. So you're automatically doing, you know, you're doing at least 4d6. Yeah. And uh, then it, it does get a save right at the end of each of its turns. But wow. Right. So I was thinking, oh, it does 2d6 fire damage. That's cool. That's good. And I was like, wait, and what? and restrained and one minute and 2d6 damage at the start of each of its turns before it can even make it save to try to yeah. uh yeah because while restrained it. disadvantage on its attack so yeah it's i mean whew. yeah so yeah that's that's uh that's, that's strong that's strong frost uh, rune yeah uh, did you want to do frost rune i'll do frost rune uh this yeah. runes magic evokes the might of those who survive in the wintry wilderness such as frost giants so while you're wearing or carrying an object inscribed you have advantage on wisdom animal handling and charisma intimidation checks but here's the good stuff <laughs> uh, in addition you can invoke the rune as a bonus action to increase your sturdiness for 10 minutes you gain a plus two bonus to all ability checks and saving throws that you strength or constitution uh once you invoke this rune you can't do so again until you finish a short or long rest uh yeah it's it's interesting you note that that it's not advantage but you know a small bonus but when you know that you need it is when you can use it the most so it's yeah. it's uh oh we have to make this saving throw against poison Oh, I, I know that I need it. So here goes, boom, constitution. Uh, so yeah, we're doing a bunch of climbs up a mountain or something yep. like that. And then, you know, 10 minutes worth, you're going to get this bonus. Yep. Um, I still think this is like, you know, the well, we haven't gone through all the runes yet, but let me just say that you have to make this decision at the beginning of the day. So that's the tough part, right? That the frost rune right. is only applicable if you're going to have this 10 minute zone of a bunch of checks. Yeah. And do you know that at the beginning of the day? Probably not. So you probably never use Frostrune. Right. Although you you know, you do get more. So by 10th level, you get four. So True. uh and True. you don't have if you have a stone rune, you have a stone rune. Uh you you can't put it on something twice. 
Right. And so it's, it's just there. Uh, and speaking of stone rune, this runes magic channels, the judiciousness associated with stone giants. While you have this rune on you, you have advantage on insight checks and dark vision to a range of 120 feet. In addition, when a creature you can see ends its turn within 30 feet of you, use your reaction to invoke the rune and force the creature to make a wisdom saving throw. Unless the save succeeds, the creature is charmed by you for one minute. While charmed, it has a speed of zero and is incapacitated, descending into a dreamy stupor. The creature repeats the saving throw at the end of each of its turns, ending on a success. Once you invoke this rune, you can't do so until you finish a short or a long rest. Notice it doesn't say if you damage the creature, it comes out of its stupor. Uh, and now this is at third level. You can do this. So, so you can incapacitate something and then just wail the bejeebers out of it. Yeah, I don't know about this one. I mean, they managed to combine yet again in this book the darkness devil sight party. Right. Of like, you know, let's find a way that everybody can, you know, see in the dark and a save or suck for monsters. I mean, wow. That's yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, if you don't save, you just get creamed. <laughs> Obliterated. I mean, yeah. incapacitated. I mean, you do get to repeat the saving throw, but it's just a round of not doing anything. When yeah. you're an important creature. Oh, good night. Yep. Mm. Now, those were all the ones that you can take at third level. Now we're getting to the ones that are a little higher level. At seventh level, you get the hill rune. Uh, the magic bestows uh, resilience reminiscent of a hill giant. While carrying an object that bears this rune, you have advantage on saving throws against being poisoned and resistance to poison damage. In addition... As a bonus action, you can invoke the rune to gain resistance to bludgeoning, piercing and, piercing, and slashing damage for one minute. And then once you invoke it, you need to finish a short or a long rest. That's that's good. That's I like it. Know, that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. tell, yeah. tell me about the storm rune. Storm rune. You must be seventh level or higher. Uh, using this rune, you can glimpse the future the way a storm giant seer would. While wearing or carrying an object with this rune, you have advantage on intelligence arcana, and you can't be surprised as long as you aren't capacitated. In addition, you can invoke the rune as a bonus action to enter a prophetic state for one minute or until you're capacitated. Until the state ends, when you or another creature you can see within 60 makes an attack roll, saving throw, or an ability check, you can use your reaction to cause the roll to have advantage or disadvantage. Once you invoke it, you can't do so again until you finish a short or long rest. Yep. So, yeah, those are all good, good things. Uh, some of them are stronger than others. Some of them are way too strong, yeah. but there they are. And uh, so, yeah, if you run a game where you get a lot of short rests, you can just be completely uh, refreshing these each time and, and even more powerful. Well, and what's uh, great is the next feature, level three Giants Might, at which point I said, whoa, we're still on third level? Yeah, so all the things that we've already talked about are third level, and this is third level as well, so go ahead. As a bonus action, gain the following benefits, which last for one minute. You can use this a number of times equals your proficiency bonus, regaining it at a long rest. So all these last one minute. If you're smaller than large, you become large, along with everything you are wearing. If you lack the room to become large, your side doesn't change. But you can be a small halfling and go straight to large halfling. <laughs> you yes. have advantage on strength checks and strength saving throws. Mm -hmm. And once on each of your turns, one of your attacks with a weapon or an unarmed strike can deal an extra d6 damage to a target on a hit. 
Okay. So that's, so that's still at third level. We're still doing this for a minute. So you can combine that with the, the rune stuff that you, that you can do. Yeah. And to balance it, there are no more features beyond this level. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, yeah. <laughs> Uh, how about at seventh level, you get runic shield where you can invoke your rune magic to protect your allies. When a creature you can see within 60 feet of you is hit by an attack roll, you can use your reaction to force the attacker to reroll the d20 and use the new roll. Uh, you can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and you regain them at the end of a long rest. So now you have a completely different reaction that interrupts someone's attack and does something uh so it's it's just now you now you have to keep track of did i use this rune did i use this rune did i use this rune have i big become large no how many times oh i have this runic shield how many times have i used it so you're keeping track of many different levels yeah. of thing here that you can do a certain number of times per day yeah and and you know like if you have the storm rune on for example then for a minute you're in this prophetic state and you have to watch your reactions to give advantage and or disadvantage out each turn but then if you also are level seven then you have this runic shield so it it, it it's endless reactions for this class so if, if you like to hog the limelight mm -hmm. <laughs> you want the spotlight in your game and want it yeah. to be all about you take the rune knight and right. uh, dominate play and don't forget you can still do the things that a, any regular fighter can do Right. Right. Yeah. And I was thinking that because a lot of times a class has to sort of do a trade off. Right. Like we'll see it with the psionic rogue. Like you have to sort of not be doing what you might otherwise do so that you can do the thing this way. But this is just, it's all gravy, I think. Yep. Yep. Definitely a reason to play a fighter. If you thought fighters were underpowered, um, yeah. we're, we're getting to the point where they are catching up to high level wizards. Uh, at level 10, you have great stature. Uh, the magic of your runes permanently alters you. When you gain this feature, roll 3d4, you grow a number of inches equal to the roll. Uh, and the extra damage that you deal with Giant's Might increases to a d8. Okay? I, I think that's kind of fun that you're just permanently yeah. bigger. Like, that's kind of hilarious. Right. And of course, I would roll, uh, you know, on 3d4, I would roll a 3. Right. So I would still be uh, less than the average height. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be hilarious. And then level 15, because it keeps going, Master of Runes, you can invoke each rune you know from your rune cover feature twice rather than once. You regain all expended uses when you finish a short or long rest. So this is interesting because you still know five runes mm -hmm. and you can apply the five. So it doesn't change that, but what it is is that you can trigger them twice. Yep. So now and you have to keep track of yeah. not just what you use, but how many times you've used each. So that, that storm rune that puts you in the prophetic state, you know, you can now do that twice uh, before you hit a short rest. Hit a short rest, you can do it again. So, I mean, it is it is very powerful. Like, you'll be doing a lot of things with this class, maybe too many things. Yep. And at level 18, yes, there's more. You get runic <laughs> juggernaut. Uh, you learn how to amplify your rune power transformation. Uh, as a result, when you deal extra damage with the Giant's Might feat, you can increase it to a D10. And moreover, when you use that feature, you can increase your size to huge rather than large. And your reach increases by five feet uh, when you are that size. Uh, uh, you're, yeah. You don't have to reach the huge size, but if you, it, but according to the wording, 
Mm -hmm. If you do, that's when you get the reach. So you'll want to, but now you've got this huge creature clogging up the battlefield. And I don't right. love that in most rooms, especially those rhyme of the frostmaid rooms we've been looking yeah. at that are these little tiny rooms. Right. You make that halfling huge and uh woof, that's an issue. Yeah. And then you get, you know, polearm masters who already have, you know, a reach weapon plus extra reach, another five feet of reach. Uh it, it's it's interesting. Uh I could definitely see it being way too much for a lot of players mm -hmm. and way too much for a lot of DMs to have to one deal the, with. One of the aspects of this is that you often would give your rune to a certain other character. So you'd put it on their weapon or on their shield or whatever, but they don't know the class like you do. So you're probably sort of reminding another player, oh, don't forget, you know, you've got the blah rune, so you could, you know, choose to expend that now. And that kind of stuff can get in the way of the game a bit. Uh, depending on everybody's style. But. Yeah, I never even thought of putting a rune on someone else's. Yeah, because it's just an object. Shield. So, you know, yeah. like an, an easy example is the fire one. And you could just say, hey, whenever you want to, you can, you know, restrain that target and deal a bunch yeah. of fire damage to them. But you might still need to remind them. But if you put like the storm rune on someone else's shield, who's, you know, like a super tanky person, or yeah. I don't know, you know, you want to protect somebody by putting the hill rune on them to resist, but you got to remind them of it. And so there's just, there's this sort of layer management that's way beyond, uh, you don't forget you have my bardic inspiration die, right? It's, right, right. And you're managing yeah. five of them, maybe twice per yeah. short rest. <laughs> that's yeah. a lot. It, it is a lot. Uh, so, I mean, it's a lot. I think that's, we can sum up this one with, some people are going to have a ball with it because it's super tactical mm -hmm. and there's a lot to keep track of. And, and some people love that. Uh, otherwise be wary of it uh, either as a player or as a dm because it it's going to be very involved yeah. um the, the final part of the fighters section of tash of tasha's is battlemaster builds and basically what it does is it gives you recommendations on how to build a battlemaster to achieve a particular theme so they go through archery bodyguard brawler etc telling you what feats to use you know how to build that in a way to get that overall feel and get the most out of it it's sort of like, like a, a mini character optimization for you I like that it was, um, they, they, they talk about the fighting style choice you make, the maneuvers you choose and feats, which is further than I thought they were going to go. I thought they might just say like, go take these maneuvers, but, but right. they really do look at how you would build your character a fair bit, um, which is kind of neat, right? Like I, I like that demonstrate. I think that's time well spent in a book to say, Hey, you can take all the rules that already exist. Here's how you can make a concept work. And that's, that's neat. And, and this is the kind of character optimization I like because it just makes you good at what the game expects you to be good at. It doesn't try to go beyond and break anything. It right. just, it, it says here is a way to be a competent character for what the game intends you to be. Yeah. You're a pugilist, right? Yeah. You want to fight with your fist. Here's what's going on. You're an outrider, you're a skirmisher, yeah. Yeah. you know, a lancer. That's, that's neat. And some of them are, a lot of them are sort of historically looking, you know, things. And so I, I like that. I'd like this section a lot. So we've we've gone for an hour and we have not even gotten to Icewind Dale Rhyme of the Frostmaiden yet. Uh, what do you want to say about this map and this huge uh, dungeon that we are? Yeah. Um, so the so we're going to talk a little about Icewind Dale. Yeah. Spoiler let's, time. Let's, yep. Yep. Spoiler time. We're going to 
touch on this pretty briefly. We don't want to go too yeah. far, but yeah. So the, the map is kind of cool. I pulled it up here to look at it. it it's actually really beautiful. Um, it is roughly divided into four zones. Uh, and the book sort of divides things like rooms one to 10, 11 to 21, though those rooms aren't always in one of those four zones, which is kind of funny. Sometimes you're, you're one of those numberings that they break it into is in another section. Uh, and the, the caves are sometimes joined just by a normal connector, but a lot of times it's a rimmer has tunnel mm -hmm. that uh, slides you into one or a set of steps, um, which makes it very interesting uh, for being somewhat like a filler location you know this is how to get to from point a to b it is really well done I th and and has some really evocative scenes right the, yeah i think the what i worry about with the dungeon when i'm a dm is how complicated is it how much how many moving parts are there that i need to keep track of and we already talked about the really the one moving part which was tequila lee yeah. Uh, and so the rest of this is just sort of neat locations that don't have a bearing on the overall story other than a little bit of history of the city that crashed here. Uh, yeah. And and those are handled pretty well right in the room description. So you don't need to, to keep the, this overall track of what the characters know or don't know. Just give them what's there. And then what they can get by going through this experience is um, a fair amount of horror pieces. So like you get this horror feel in various scenarios, um, whether it's because of the netherese that died when the city crashed and pieces of it are found here, uh, or because it's, I don't know, an infusion from the far realm or some other aspect like that. So you get a nice horror piece here. This is one of the places in the adventure which is done the best. Mm -hmm. um, you also get a really nice sense of that netherese history, which I like a lot. Yeah. Um, the I'm just going to mention a couple of rooms that I think you should, as the DM, be aware of. Uh, one, there are ice methods flying around the ceiling, and they look like icicles. And what they do is they drop icicles on the PCs. And this is a way to take a very low, low CR monster that's really no threat to the party and make them make it fun, make it cool, make it different. It's not just we have to just the, these ice methods come charging at us and we beat them down. They're hovering around the ceiling. So it's going to challenge the characters to be able to pick them off because they're more dangerous dropping icicles than they would be if they were down in their face and do fun things like, oh, there's seven ice methods. I'm going to cast a fireball up at the ceiling just to take care of them all. <laughs> well, if you do that, just rain icicles down on them <laughs> yeah. because they just basically, you know, it's that sort of thing. That's fun. Uh, yeah. Make the characters think things through, think their situation through, because I see players throwing fireballs all around, not even thinking what are they actually hitting with this fireball? Right. Yeah. Oh, the, the side of the barn you're hitting. Oh, guess what happens? <laughs> the barn catches on fire. You know, this is one of those things where you can reinforce that actions have consequences. Something that I liked um, is how they use the remoras in this area. It's not just to join rooms together, but they have heated pools that gives you a sort mm -hmm. of feeling of ecology. Uh, there are remoras eggs in various places, which uh, I think they missed a bit of an opportunity here to, to give it a random chance when a remoras might be born out of the egg, mm -hmm. because you know you're going to be doing adventuring for a while, and I would certainly have some hilarious scene where the remoras is starting to hatch and you've got to keep it warmer yeah. so that it doesn't hatch i think would be great um, yeah 
you know, that could be neat, but there's some nice encounters and there's one place where it makes you feel like there's a bunch of, uh, this might happen, but then it doesn't. And so I like how they have a couple of different remoras pools encounters here. And I love the remoras as a creature because it's this kind of thing that even when I roll poorly, when people hit me, they take damage. That's a win. Yep. Uh, there is a room with 12 shadows now, 12 shadows, (laughs) 12 shadows aren't really much of a, uh, fight for higher level characters, except for the fact that shadows do damage to your strength. They reduce your strength. So if you're not careful, people are dumping strength as a stat because it's really the least useful unless you're using a melee weapon that draws for strength. So you're going to be running around with a lot of strength eight characters who have, if they're hit by two shadows, they basically have eight hit points Uh, (laughs) and you don't go to zero strength and then start making death saves. You just die. You become a shadow. Yeah. at, At zero strength. And what happens, see, this is, this is interesting because, uh, People are like, oh, there's so many spells that can just uh, revivify. If you're dead and you are brought back with revivify, what's your strength? It's still zero. You're still dead. Right? I I believe uh, uh, that's the case. So you have to be very... You need a greater restoration, right? Right. To to have your strength be higher than that. So... Uh, and also think about what happens if a shadow crits, because um, you're going to be tempted as the DM to roll 2d4 instead of 1d4, but a critical only um, doubles right. damage dice. And this is not a damage die because it doesn't say you do damage to strength. It says strength is lowered. So as fun as it may be to want to do, <laughs> uh, don't double the strength damage because it's not damage the strength lowering yeah. uh, ability of the shadow yeah shadows are shadows are no joke when they pick on someone and because yeah. you have 12 that's the thing that depending on the situation this is something to run to watch in these kinds of encounters because of the situation you might have like oh the rogue is gonna go in ahead mm-hmm. of everybody else which is a horrible thing to do um in a room full of shadows that can see in the dark and mm-hmm. um yeah and and so they'll just gang up on that one character right you know that can be really bad or if there's just a couple in the front line so you want to draw the whole group in and then attack them with these shadows so that it's not overwhelming one character (laughs) right and and if you really want to do some damage with them you can uh but you just might want to be careful if you are are being a uh, cautious dm it's also worth saying that I love the the way they tell a story here. So like you meet these shadows and then if you that's in one room, you go into another room and you find the dead headless skeletons that became those shadows and their story around becoming cannibals, but still eventually died of hunger. And then there's a psychic trauma in this area. And that then can kind of relay their story as you're going through sort of this uh, situation here where you get super hungry and want to eat, though. It's kind of brutal this one here. You when you enter this area, you have to make um see how does it work? Let's see. Yeah, it's a saving throw, right? Constitution maybe. You make any creature that enters this room feels intensely hungry even after leaving the cave. That part's not a saving throw. Eating a handful of food keeps the creature's hunger at bay for one hour. If your hunger is not satisfied within one minute, 
So this is sort of a lingering thing. Then you must make a saving throw or gain a level of exhaustion. And you must repeat this every hour until you succeed or die, or the effect is ended by on the creature by magic that can remove a curse. Mm -hmm. So if you have some bad rolls and don't have remove curse or something like that, you're going to be in yeah. for some trouble. Yeah. And there's a lot of great imaginative things in here. And then there's some things that make you go, what did I just read? And I'm looking at Vladimir's spark. So it's a, uh, it is a weapon that has obtained the soul of its wielder who died. And so if someone picks it up, a barbarian fighter, monk or ranger touches this weapon, this spark, the soul from the uh, frost giant that wielded it goes into them and they become 21 feet tall and get a strength of 23. Now you have to, understand that the ceilings in this place are not 21 feet tall they are smaller than that and so it becomes problematic at times do you really want something with a 23 strength yeah why why yeah. did we do this I, I don't know yeah this part i just couldn't even understand it so um, so you depending on how your party is built uh you may want to play with that it's a cool concept i love the idea i just think you might want to temper it have it only last for a minute or do something else that yeah, makes it, it reasonable you know what i would do is i would have this be that you have this spirit inside of you and i would dig into that horror piece and, and it's kind of talking to you in a way that you're not going to want to trust it so you want to make the player kind of scared about it and it would offer you this bargain of like having this great strength. Mm -hmm. But then you have to roll some number of dice and that's the number of hit dice you lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it would last for a short time. You'd get this, you know, you'd, you'd embiggen yourself and you'd have this super strength and then it would go away and it would say, come on, let's do it again. Right. right? Roll the dice. See if you run out of hit dice. And if you run out of hit dice, you're dead. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that'd be the fun way to do it, I think. Yep. And Something the, like that, but a yeah. little, that's not just so automatic. You know, right. get this boon that, right. Um, yeah. Th that's, that's why it's great to be the DM because you can do these things. <laughs> you can use this great idea and make it perfect for your game. Uh, the last one was the thing in the ice, uh, which is basically a version of the thing. Uh, <laughs> there's this tentacled, horrible creature that's way deep in this ice and it tries to dominate the characters and it can dominate all of them if they fail their saving throws and do whatever it wants with them, uh, including attack each other. And this could t then turn into a bloodbath of dominated characters beating on each other. Um, or even if you stand still, if, if you were all just somehow like you roll terribly and everybody fails, right. then you're just going to stand there while it probes your mind and you're going to take 44 psychic damage or yep. half. Uh, after being there for an hour and then you might be yeah. forced into being dominated and yeah yeah so it you know just again you can have fun with it. it it has the potential to be way overwhelming uh and not fun so use it uh with best discretion for your group yeah and that's the kind of room where i would do exactly that i would just i might run it as it is and then tweak as i go 
right? Mm -hmm. Just play around with it and change it up and, and create, because what can happen here is a really neat role-playing scene where one person's sort of taken over and it could be fun to pull the player in another room, give them some instructions. Right. And, and, you know, why are you just standing there and then just like say like weird eldritch things, right? You know, the sleeper has awakened, you know, like a yeah. player at your table says that to you. You're like, Oh my God, what's going on. And that could be really fun. Right. And yeah. just so work with it and massage yep. it. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I like, the, oh, I like the mimic uh, cube. Yeah. Yep. This cavern that has an eight foot cube of grayish green stone, and it's a spitting mimic, which is a, a version in this book that's CR five. It can spit acid at a creature within thirty. And what's great about it, and I love this about mimics in general, is if you touch it, you adhere to it. So it's probably going to start with one or more characters stuck right. to this block that then right. reveals itself, um, and that's just great. Yeah. If you want to really mess with them, put buttons on it. Yeah. Oh, there's a block with a lever and two buttons. <laughs> and so everyone's going to go over and press the buttons and pull the lever and, and automatically stick to the, the creature. So, you know. Oh, God. Yeah. If you had the levers on that. one on each side and people yeah. think, well, we got to each grab one. Yeah. 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 So depending on how how hard you have to be on your characters, you can, your players, you can adjust it. Yep. Mess with them. I do like the design wise that they, you know, sometimes when you design a place like this, it's just like a bunch of open caverns. There's no story to it. There's no v reason why you really would have treasure because they haven't been in the outside world. Uh, and so by explaining that this is has these chunks of pieces from the Netherese city that crashed here, now you have reasons why there's treasure. You have reasons why there's story and lore. You have reasons why there are uh, undead that can sort of tell their tale. I, I, I love mm -hmm. the design of this. Yeah. I thought it was really well done. Me too. I, I think it is for, for what is essentially filler. Uh, like you say, moving from point A to point B, uh, it it can be made to work. It works on its own very well, and it it is open for uh, DM improvement to uh, you know get the most out of it based on the story that you and your players are telling. Just really quickly, Sean, one thing that's worth noting is that in H thirty seven, there are some Nothics. Mm -hmm. Um, that the idea is they've come up following some drow that you can find in here who just happened upon these caves digging up from below. And the Nothics are sort of curious, watching things, figuring things out, which is not what I thought Nothics would do. Mm -hmm. uh, and they prefer not to fight and stay back. And you can actually negotiate with them if you speak Loros, uh, or if you can write to them in Draconic. Loros is what Professor Scant speaks, so the yeah. Professor Orb can translate. And they can actually provide information in the city, which I don't see a party negotiating with Nothics, but mm -hmm. uh, you never know. If they do, they get some really, really useful information. Right. Um, none of which a DM will understand at this point unless they've read the next chapter, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but super useful information for the party. Yeah. And, you know, my overall thought on this was so far, what's been lacking in this adventure is a big dungeon. So this might be where you switch gears and go from, you know, you're getting a long rest after every little thing you do to now is the time where you're going to do a resource management, slower dungeon crawl and kind of get the most out. Use that horror element. Have the enemies moving. These The enemies in here, the wraiths, there's a wraith, the shadows, the the uh, vampire spawn and, right. and Tequila Lee. Um, can all move around so it's hit and run it's drag things out it's use that horror it's keep them guessing slow things down yeah 
Um, so at the end of this, you have a mile long tunnel that leads out of these caverns to the city of Yithrin, where we're going to get into uh, the fallen city. We also get a note in the wrapping up section that finally tells us what Avarice is up to. Uh, we alluded to this in our last episode, but Avarice is following the characters. Mm -hmm. And by the time you make it out of this tunnel towards the city of Yithrin, Avarice and her followers arrive at the caves and they kill any elk tribe warriors that were guarding the entrance, sort of nullifying whatever decision you made back then, which is a little bit too bad. Uh, but she's, you know, chasing you and, and I guess catching up. You don't, the characters won't know this, but the DM is at least told that, okay, that's what's going on. Um, and if somehow Tekeli was not slain, which is possible because it, it doesn't really say that it doesn't continue using its tactics of running away. It right. at no point says stands and, and, and delivers and dies. Mm -hmm. So if you don't manage to slay it, it will escape and go to 10 towns to feed, which is very interesting. So that could yeah. be a, a thing that you come back to later when you return. Right. I would totally use that, right? That whole <laughs> idea of a recurring enemy, yeah. uh, I think is important. So, yep. So with that, next time we will delve into the next chapter, which is the lost city. The whole reason that you've come here in the first place. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, listeners, and thank you, patrons. Um, if you would like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, you, social media, where, why, how? Uh, I can be found on the Twitters at AlphaStream, and I can maintain a blog at alphastream.org where I can tell you all about your discords and your Adventures League and mm -hmm. other topics. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com where you can talk to Teos and I about your thoughts on the show and so on. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. Hey, Teos, what should we do now? Oh, let's negotiate with some Nothics. Yes, Same let's thing. do that. Yep. <laughs>